Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are talking about the European Union's relations with Russia. We have just seen a visit of the EU's high representative, Josep Borrell, to Moscow, which was the first to Russia by a senior EU envoy since 2017. And his visit came at a time of high tension between Europeans and Russians with debates about the imprisoning of Navalny, his poisoning, as well as questions to do with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and lots of calls for sanctions against the Russian Federation. So to help us put the latest stories into a bigger picture. We have an all-star cast here today. First up, we have Nico Popescu, who's the director of ECFR's Wider Europe program. Down the line from Berlin, we have Kadri Leek, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR and one of our experts on Russia's domestic and foreign policy. And also joining us down the line from Madrid is Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, who is the head of ECFR's Madrid office, and he can also give us some interesting background into the mise en oeuvre of, of the high representative's visit to Moscow. Thank you all very much for joining. Why don't we start with that visit to Moscow and maybe go to you first, Nacho, because I think that most people who listen to the podcast will have heard some of the reporting from what happened in Moscow and of that fateful press conference. But you've been watching it very, very closely. So maybe you can um, just give us a, a quick summary about what happened and, and what matters about it. Well, I think that there was a lot of controversy to begin with on whether this visit should have taken place. And it was already scheduled. Um, Navalny's trial made it even more interesting it was not entirely clear what the goals were because it was a, a mission whose goal was to test the waters in Moscow. Some member states were very reluctant, uh, especially from Central Eastern Europe. Some others, especially the big four, were not reluctant, were kind of happy with the decision. But also um, in the week before, they had failed to produce any meaningful statement. Well, not a statement, but policies or decisions on whether they would be sanctioning uh, Russia for its behavior on the Navalny's case. So the mandate was very open or non-existent other than just to engage in a dialogue and find out. Probably the, I mean, the, the mistake was not to anticipate that um, the, the climate in Moscow would be extremely sensitive because the Navalny case was showing uh, weaknesses and cracks inside. And that therefore, if you wanted to engage in dialogue, this was not the best uh, moment. And therefore, if you uh, wanted to test the waters, that was the worst moment to do it. And therefore, the, the reaction, which was quite brutal and, and as we saw, caught off guard the HRBP Borrell, which is, uh, of course, was criticized because the, the momentum was very, was very clear. So now we have to pick up the pieces, but we can discuss that. But I think, you know, it was a, it was a visit that went out in a kind of a routine and good faith mood and ended up with a, with a blog post by, by Borrell saying, and a, and a very uh, controversial hearing in the parliament on the lessons learned. So uh, let's see how good we can get of, uh, how much good we can get out of this very controversial visit to, to Moscow. 
So I want to go into that with you, Niku, in a bit. But before we do that, Kadri, you follow Russia really, really closely and you are often helping us make sense of what the Russians do at particular moments. Can you try and explain the Russian actions? Were you surprised that they expelled these diplomats during the, the press conference with Burrell? Were you surprised at how um, aggressive uh, the the Russian handling of that visit was? I was a little bit, yes, and I, I still don't understand it. I can understand that it is hard for Russia and Europe to find common language on very many things right now. I can see how many people in Russia think that Europe is not relevant or time is not right for cooperation with Europe because Europe is a moving target and so is Russia. So interest is admittedly low and and worries that domestic political tension, thanks to Navalny and the protests, and you can see how the Kremlin is a little bit worried and tries to suppress it. Given all that, I still don't understand why it was necessary to humiliate Borel, at least knowingly, if if not intentionally. I mean, given that Moscow was the hosting side, that was actually almost, or, or not even almost, I mean, that was impolite. And and why would one do that? I, I don't understand it. Yeah. So I want to kind of get beyond the, the sort of short visit and onto the bigger strategy. Um, but immediately before we do that, naturally, one of the other things that was going on, which you mentioned, was this trip to the European Parliament. Over 70 MEPs have called for Burrell's resignation. How did his hearing go? How serious are these calls for him to resign? Well, I think there were largely two camps. Uh, both of them were in agreement that the visit had been a failure and that um, the EU had been slapped in the face. Some people, of course, thought, and this is why they asked Borrell to resign, that it was Borrell that had been slapped in the face, like it was a personal issue and therefore he should resign. Others uh, understood that this was a wider issue and it was the EU that had been slapped in the, in the face. This group who had asked for the resignation did not, in fact, disagree on the lessons that the EU should draw from this, from the others who, you know, understood that Borrell was kind of a, more of an accidental victim. So at the end, I think there was consensus, even in what Borrell said, that Borrell said that um, he, had, he had seen Russia going deep down into a deep authoritarian drive at home and also a disconnecting drive abroad. And, and this analysis uh, was shared uh, by all the participants, no matter what were the responsibilities of Borrell in, in preparing and conducting the, the visit. So I think out of that, I saw that, of course, it was controversial. But um, and I think you hardly see such a level of agreement in the diagnosis about Russia. And this is why with Kadri that in a sense, you know, Lavrov might have got his minute of glory and for domestic consumption, but he maybe has done more for unifying Europe's position around Russia than everything we've done, 27 have done together in the, um, in the last years. Okay. So, Niku, that brings me to you. You wrote a recent commentary on our website just before Burrell went, arguing that it was pretty dangerous to go and try and 
and reset relations with Russia. And you sort of explained a bit why so many attempts to reset relations failed. How do you, if we take a step back from the from the kind of last, uh, you know, the sort of headlines of the last few days, how do you see the sort of structure of, of Europe's relationship with Russia? Why do you think these attempts to, to reset relations are, are so kind of ill-judged and, and often end up creating false expectations and disappointment rather than leading to, to anything useful? What is striking is that from the... It, this- recent visit by Borrell to Moscow. And of course, that's not a visit just by Borrell. He went there on behalf of all the EU member states, and many of them have been asking and hoping for quite some time that there there might be a chance to reset relations with Russia and to bring them back on on some more normal and positive footing. And in this sense, the way Russia treated Borrell was not just treating Borrell, it was treating in an unfriendly manner you know, Russia's best friends inside the European Union. And that, of course, is likely to have implications for the way the Russia debate will continue to evolve in the EU. When it comes to resets, I think this latest visit also underlined how the previous resets with Russia or attempts to reset relations with Russia failed. And There's been basically half a dozen such attempts from Obama in 2009, the EU-Russia Partnership for Modernization and the German Meseberg Initiative in 2011, the offer of selective engagement in 2016, the French-Russian dialogue after the Bregenson Summit. All of those attempts to reach out and engage Russia have basically failed, partly because the Russians are not in the mood to reset their own foreign policy. Their interest is actually uh, to double down on this foreign policy, and that's something the Europeans and the Americans have not really kept in mind while reaching out to Russia. And the hope was that by being nice and diplomatically nice and diplomatic with Russia, the, the Europeans would be able to improve the relationship, and that has not really worked so far. And that, of course, poses a problem as to what to do next. So what do you think we should do next? Well, I think part of the problem was that the EU has basically positioned itself as this dispensable uh, partner, if you want. Russia has been able to actually uh, continue cooperating with uh, many players in Europe, many member states. And of course, here you have the Nord Stream 2. Russian has been uh, Russian gas exports to the EU have been uh, beating all historical records in the last three, four years. On many dimensions, cooperation has been evolving and the Russians have been able to continue to extract what, you know, the benefits of cooperation from the European Union without engaging in minimally respectful diplomacy. And the EU as an institution and its member states have been pushed aside on several occasions. And if the European Union wants to renormalize and uh, reopen dialogue and the new channels of dialogue with Russia, it also has to basically force itself into the picture as the indispensable partner to Moscow, not as some uh, partner that is, uh, not as some former actor that is invited to be a spectator to European security issues. So, Kadri, what do you think would make the Russians see Europeans as as less dispensable? My advice to Europe at this point would be to calm down, be a little bit less ambitious, do homework, and then look around slowly as to where Russia fits in the list of things that we want to do for our own sake and how to go about talking to Russia in in that context. Because, I mean, 
I see it on slightly wider background. I, I think that the whole concept for EU-Russia relations, or the only concept we have that doesn't work anymore, but, but there is nothing else, it was set up under different circumstances. Our relationship was conceptualized when European Union was still one of the leading world powers, when you wrote your book, Why Europe Will Run 21st Century. You know, the future was supposed to be ours. Future was supposed to be shaped according to the rules that worked in, in Europe. And our foreign policy was the spread of norms and values. Also as concerns Russia, if you, if you look at the documents about EU-Russia relations, you know, these reflect that Russia was supposed to take over our norms in a more ambitious or more limited way. And actually, partnership for modernization was already scaling back from, from strategic partnership. It's funny how people don't remember, but that was actually already sort of stepped down rather than stepping up. But in any case, concept was always the same, that Russia needs to change and become more like us. And now... We are not in that position for a while already any, anymore. You have written about it yourself, how Europe is sort of Galapagos ecosystem, unique, but something that others cannot copy. Ivan Krastev has written about European Union as monastery that lives according to rules that are different from the outside world. You know, be it as it may, I think we can conceptualize it in different ways. But my point is that our desires concerning Russia are all rooted in that time when we lived under different notions. And I don't think any of this can work right now. And I also don't think that we will come to a new framework very quickly. And you can see how some people try to invent new frameworks. I mean, President Macron, not least, he tried to come up with something new. And Russia was not interested at all. But neither will... Other theories work. I mean, Lithuanians tried to use sticks to make Russia behave in ways Europe would like it to behave. That doesn't work either. And Germany has tried to use cooperation on small things, hoping that this will lead to a more cooperative relationship. That doesn't work either. So I think we just should be patient. So I think Europe should relax a little bit and acknowledge that we cannot have a workable strategy vis-à-vis -vis Russia right now. For that to be possible, certain things need to change. Europe itself will need to find its feet in a new situation. Russia will notice it. Then Russia will start taking Europe more seriously as a political actor that is there to stay. And then we could look at what we can do in, in this new framework. But I would suggest us to be patient. So, Natch, I want to come back to you in a bit to talk about some of the different member states that are putting pressure on the EU. But there is quite a lot of strategy which is already there. I mean, Niku, when you first came to ECFR, when ECFR first started, we did this power audit on EU-Russia relations and at that time, the EU was, was very, very divided. It couldn't really talk about Russia. And it was very dependent on Russia in all sorts of different ways. I think we have come quite a long way since then and have shown that we're a lot more organised than we were then. The energy relationship is, is much less 
skewed against European countries in terms of the dependency. Europeans have shown quite a strong willingness to deter Russia with their sanctions policies after the annexation of Crimea and the war in Ukraine. And those sanctions have proved quite resilient. The EU has also developed quite a sort of deep way of engaging with its neighbours, not least with Ukraine, but also Moldova, where you come from originally. And those things seem to be quite kind of solid and and serious. I mean, how depressed do you think we should be about Europe's Russia strategy? Or do you think that there is actually more of a strategy there than we sometimes give ourselves credit for? What you say about the EU is definitely a sign of progress, consolidation on the energy front, on the foreign policy front. But I think what also shapes a lot the dynamic is that other powers have moved even faster to consolidate and to become aggressive. And much of that aggression is also turned against the EU. And that applies to Russia, but it also applies to Turkey. And and in the bigger picture around the EU. I think what we've seen is also the EU becoming basically increasingly irrelevant in the dynamic in a lot of key regions around the EU. That's Libya, that's Syria, that's Nagorno-Karabakh. You know, even in some Balkan dynamics, we have seen the EU being pushed aside, not necessarily by Russia. But we have also seen the EU on the one hand consolidating, but on the other hand, an increasing number of other powers being uh, quite hostile to the European Union, tripling, (laughs) and doubling down and tripling down their foreign policy and military postures. And compared to that, of course, the EU consolidation has kind of lagged behind uh, for the type of issues that much of the European neighborhood has to deal with, and those are issues of uh, war and peace. I'd also maybe like to say that too, it's very good to talk about EU-Russia relations, but that's, they are not an end in themselves. I think the main interest for the European Union is to be influential, is to be heard, and to be able to shape events vis-a-vis Russia, vis-a-vis Turkey, vis-a-vis much of the Middle East, vis-a-vis much of Eastern neighborhood. And in this sense, I think the main benchmark for judging European uh, Union's uh, effectiveness of EU is not just whether it has a good dialogue with Moscow or Ankara, but also whether it is able to shape the environment in which the EU operates to its interest. And sometimes the road to more influence is to be more forceful, to be more muscular, to be more unilateralist. Many powers take this road. So far, this has worked. This has worked also to the detriment of the EU. And even if such a dynamic is definitely against the European foreign policy instincts, of course, the status quo where the European Union has been turned into a bystander in so many crises in its own neighborhood is, is of course, much less comfortable for the EU than to try and reconsider the way it is talking to other powers which are implementing hostile policies for the EU and are aiming directly to weaken the EU as as a network and as an institution and as an organization that has a say in regional affairs. So what do you think that the EU should actually do in practice then? The EU should go back to uh, analyzing actually quite very carefully how a country like Turkey, for example, balances confrontation and cooperation with Russia. And I think Turkey manages to, at the same time, have a much better political relationship with Russia, while at the same time being much more invested in uh, military and defense cooperation with a country like Ukraine, for example, 
or of course with a country like Azerbaijan. And in this sense, the Turks have been much more successful than the EU in being at the same time friendly and aggressive towards Russia. Israel also adopted a somewhat similar strategy on Russia, aggressive on issues of narrow national interest, but managing to maintain a quite stable political dialogue with uh, with Moscow. And I think basically it might sound counterintuitive, but the Europeans might uh, take a closer look and perhaps even learn from how Tel Aviv or Ankara have managed their relationship with Russia. And what the highlights of that learning process might be is that these states have pursued their interest, uh, sometimes in cold-blooded, sometimes even aggressive manner vis-a-vis Russia. They have expanded their network of alliances. They have promoted their national interest. But at the same time, they've been very respectful and they engaged and explained their point of view in Moscow. But they have not really tried to do this kind of sweet-talking diplomacy that the Europeans think is the only road to engagement with other powers. And to a degree, the Europeans should also learn from the Russians. I mean, Russia has not been self-censoring its own policies vis-a-vis EU candidate countries in the Balkans. We've seen in recent years a massively, a kind of very fast developing Russian-Serbian military partnership with weapon supplies, weapons acquisitions. All of that has implications for European security, for European power in the Balkans. And we have not seen Russia dancing around uh, European sensitivities in the in the Balkans the same way the Europeans have been dancing around Russian sensitivities in the post-Soviet states uh, when it comes to military and security matters. So one of the challenges, I suppose one of the things that means that we have to have this multi-level approach, which you were describing, Niku, is that different countries want different things within the EU. Some countries want to get closer. Other countries want to be more hostile. Macron is talking about resetting the relationship. The Lithuanian president is talking about um, introducing tougher and tougher sanctions on, on Navalny. Nacho, how do you think we can manage this? How do we make sure that these polyphonic demands are not leading to Europeans sort of creating weakness for themselves. Because, you know, when we started with this trip, you know, it was it was very difficult to see how it was going to be seen as a success, given how contradictory the, the requirements of different players were. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's funny because, you know, in the origins and when you go back, you know, to all the books on European integration, there is never or there was never a theory on how the outside world would play into United in Europe, it was a domestic-led and, and kind of homegrown bottom-up process. So, and I think we found out in the last years that, you know, as in as much as Trump has become a sort of external federator for the EU, I think Lavrov's uh, brutal press conference may have done more to help the European Union put together a Russia policy than, you know, hundreds of foreign affairs councils meetings. Sometimes, you know, you need a mirror and you need the others to see you or to talk to you. Paradoxically, this time, Lavrov was talking to the EU and understanding the EU as a block sometimes, you know, even beyond what our divisions show. So I think it is now the turn, especially, I would say, for France and Germany to come up with a decision on whether they want to accept that vision which Lavrov put together is that the EU as such, not France or Germany, that the EU as such is a threat an existential threat, as Borrell said, to Russia just by being there, just by being successful, just by being a democracy. You know, we are seen as a threat. So um, let's see to which extent we can now understand that, you know, how the Russians view us is that also, in a sense, how we should act 
and that means act together. And the temptation of uh, France and Germany, as, as you said, um, Kadri and Nico, to try and find their own ways and their bilateral presets and their advantages. I think there, there are many more lessons here for Paris and Berlin than there are for, for Borrell. So maybe just ask you all a final piece of advice about what we should be doing. It's, it seems like to summarize what we've come to so far is that we need to calm down a little bit, be a bit less sort of desperate to please Russia <laughs> or to condemn it, that we need to be a bit less predictable, a bit tougher in terms of asserting our own interests in neighboring countries. Do you each want to just give one last piece of advice about what a new strategy should be? Because we know that European foreign ministers are going to be meeting on the 22nd of February. So what should they uh, agree to do when they talk about Russia? Well, as I said, I, I don't think that coming up with a new strategy is possible at this moment in time. So I would be happy if people understood it and accepted that for the years to come, our relationship with Russia will be low-key and ad hoc, but we can still talk about things that interest us. You know, if if Europe wants to go green, it's totally fine to set some conditions to Russia's energy exporters and see how they fulfill it. So what I also wish is to end that schizophrenia we have around dialogue with Russia you know, some people think that dialogue is an end in itself and miracle cure for problems. Others think that it is a crime and means we are sacrificing all our principles. It is actually neither. You talk when you have to, and when you don't have to talk, you, you, you don't talk. It is it is really quite simple. And Russia does it very well. So why why cannot we? Why, you know, we try to calibrate it somehow. We have done sanctions, now we need to do dialogue. No, you, you don't need anything. You do what you think is needed for you. Yeah, I agree that one thing maybe we should, we should stop doing is this endless and useless discussion on engagement versus containment. That, uh, you know, we should, you can do coercive engagement and, and you can do a kind of a very passive containment should that be the, the case in some areas is by, you know, refusing to enter into into agreement or discussion in things where you find, you know, that you're not going to get any advantage. So uh, I think it would be good that we came up with a very realistic assessment of what are our interests and which measures these interests in every field requires. In some of them, it would require engagement. In others, it would require maybe containment. But let's understand what our interests are rather than how then we should conduct them. That's a secondary question. It's useful for the European Union to try and insulate existing uh, areas of cooperation with Russia. They are evolving, actually, in a lot of areas. Cooperation has been going much better when politicians and diplomats don't try to promote them. And they are happening by themselves when it comes to mutual visits, tourism, gas trade. On a lot of dimensions, political attention actually prevents selective engagement, if you want. I think the second strategy is for Europe to try and increase its own diplomatic weight. Some of it is by closer cooperation with the United States now. And I think one of the kind of key elements of Borrell's visit was, of course, the fact that the Europeans have waited for someone else than Trump for so many years. And once they got someone else than Trump, the Europeans engaged in unilateral outreach initiatives to both China and Russia. And that makes both the transatlantic 
partnership, but also Europe itself weaker in these dialogues, such unilateral attempts by the EU to deal with the other great powers, and the EU is not a great manager of other great powers. I think it's useful for Europe to start investing in its own network of alliances and security partnerships. All powers do that. Russia, Turkey, they have all this network of alliances. And the Europeans need to start increasing their own weight by developing security cooperation with friendly countries like Georgia, like Ukraine, of course, Tunisia, Morocco, in sub-Saharan Africa, you have them, and cultivate this relationship and go back to talking to the great power by you know, not just speaking for Brussels or for EU capitals, but for bigger groups of states with which Europe can already has good political relations, but has underinvested in, in security and military links with them. Do that for several years and then send uh, the high representative to Moscow with better made uh, homework of strategic consolidation on behalf of the EU. All right. Well, that's uh, it's a good work plan for the next few years. Uh, it's been great talking to the three of you. We have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Kadri, what's on your bookshelf? Actually, I have been reading quite a lot of fiction. George Orwell, fiction, not essays. Tom Stoppard, Arundhati Roy. I would highly recommend it. It's so refreshing. But to advertise in this podcast... Maybe another book, a book of memoirs about Anatoly Dobrynin, who was a famous Russian ambassador who served 25 plus years, I think, in the US. One of the most respected figures in Russian diplomacy of all times. I guess that's my way of dealing with the trauma of Lavrov Borel press conference that we saw last week. Nacho. Well, you know, my column is called Café Steiner, in homage, in homage to George Steiner and his idea of, of Europe. And this book just came out, a reader on Steiner, on which I'm supposed to be writing something. But there is this very short book, which is an interview with Antoine Spear, which is called The Barbarism of Ignorance. It's in French, or so I have a Spanish translation here. I don't know whether it's translated to English. And I really recommend this conversation with Steiner on Europe um, fascism and ignorance, which probably, you know, should be sent to some places outside Europe for a good rest. What about you, Niku? I just finished reading uh, a book called Rakowski ou la Révolution dans tous les pays, about a very interesting personage from a uh, hundred plus years ago. He was born Bulgarian. He ended up being a Romanian citizen and one of the founders of the Romanian Communist Party. But then he went to Russia after the October Revolution in 1917. He became the first formal head of the Ukrainian Socialist, uh, Soviet Socialist Republic. Then he was sent on as ambassador to London and Paris. So that's a pretty fascinating story of someone caught in those tumultuous events. And of course, he ended up being killed in, uh, in the Gulag on Stalin's orders. So that's that's an interesting book to read, uh, not least by uh, keeping an eye on events today. Okay, great. Well, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please let other people know about it by giving us a good rating or review on whatever platform you've used to download it on. We will put links up to all the publications that were mentioned on our website, which is ecfr.eu slash podcasts. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal. Our editor is Marlene Riedel. And from Kadri Leek, Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, Nico Bobescu, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. <laughs>